we're very fortunate in that we have uh, Jack Berninger, who will um, help introduce today's speaker. Jack is the Richmond Times-Dispatch's wine writer. So Jack will come up and do the formal introduction of our speaker today. Jack? When I arrived here today, I told Paul I needed uh, 42 minutes to do this introduction. <laughs> he gave me this odd look. He said, you have two minutes. So in my hand, I have three pages of notes. The other 25 are in my car, so you can come to my car if you want more information. It's an honor to be here today uh, to represent the Richmond Times-Dispatch, which continues to be a proud sponsor of the Banner Lecture ser Series here at VHS. Vineyards and winemaking have become all-American success stories in recent years, especially here in Virginia, where we now have 190 wineries producing what is being recognized, as nas uh, being recognized nationally and internationally as quality wine. In his book, The Wild Vine, today's speaker, speaker Todd Kleiman, created an outstanding piece of literature about the only truly American grape, the Norton. As I wrote in a column when the book came out, Todd used a gentle touch to craft prose that takes the story beyond just a book about grape. He transports us back to those early days of winemaking and tells us about Thomas Jefferson's passion for wine and the failed winemaking attempts in Virginia. Todd traces the history of the Norton grape from the start through its virtual disappearance because of the Civil War and Prohibition to its resurrection in this state and elsewhere. Todd's amazing research over a four-year period validates that Dr. Daniel Norton did indeed create the Norton grape in the 1820s here in Richmond. Norton's Magnolia Gardens were located somewhere near where the Sigel Center now stands on VCU's campus. As I said, this book is more than a story about a grape. It's also about Jenny McLeod of Chrysalis Vineyards in Middleburg. It's a story about her fight to find herself and her, uh, her fight for the underdog and for the Norton grape. Todd Kleiman is the food and wine editor of The Washingtonian and also the magazine's food critic. He was previously the food columnist for the Washington City Paper, where he won a prestigious James Beard Foundation Award in 2005 for the country's best newspaper column. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, National Geographic Traveler, The Washington Post Magazine, and The Oxford American, among others. Kleiman also taught English and literature for 10 years at American University, my alma mater, and at Howard University. This is his first book. Please welcome Todd Kleiman, who will speak to us today about the wild vine, a forgotten grape, and the untold story of American wine. Thank you, Jack, very much, and thank you, Paul. And I uh, want to say a thank you to Nelson for Nelson Langford for having me down here today. Thank you all for coming out on such a, a hot summer day at the launch of summer. This is really um, a great honor to be here and a great thrill for me to be here. Um, Richmond is a city that I have always liked and in recent years have come to love. Uh, the more time I've spent down here researching, delving into its nooks and crannies, um, and it's, it's wonderful to come back and, and be able to talk to you about this book and the making of this book. There's, there's a friend of mine who, when I told him I would be coming here to talk today, he said, well, what, what's, your, what's your talk going to be about? And I said, well, uh, Twain and Whitman and that period where jazz is first emerging, and he said, I thought you were going to be talking about wine. And I said, well, after a fashion and, and in my own way. I want to tell you another story by way of preamble. Not long after The Wild Vine was published last year, there was a blog that reviewed the book. And in the comment section of the blog, love the comment section, we get all the rabble of society chiming in. <laughs> all the informed, all the, the literate, all the, the, the impassioned. Uh, and he said, 
all this research this guy did, he's read 100 or so books, I've been reading the back of the book, there are 100 or so books cited, he does all this research, and then he calls the book The Wild Vine, The Norton is not a wild vine. And I thought, spare us the literalists. <laughs> My immediate thought was, has, has he not read the Bible? You know, the wild vine, the, the stubborn thing, the unruly spirit, the thing that doesn't obey. Apparently not. Metaphor is not something you see much talked about on the web in the comments sections. But this afternoon is about metaphor. And you'll see this afternoon that I'm a little bit of a wild vine myself, um, that I'm not much of a literalist, and that today is not about tannins and structure and about malolactic fermentation and notes of blackberry leather and tar. <laughs> this afternoon, as I said, is about metaphor. I suppose it's inevitable that if you write a book about a single grape, a single wine, that people will presume that you love that wine. And I do love Norton. I love what I perceive in it. I love what I think it embodies. Now, it was a taste that sent me on this admittedly crazy journey. It was a taste I began with a few sips that launched me to discover what Norton is and isn't. And it was a search that would consume the next four years of my life and turn me into something of an obsessive, a Norton obsessive. And that taste led me to a very fascinating woman, a very amazing woman, an earthy, funny, very charismatic woman named Jenny McLeod. And how fascinating and how amazing it would take me two years more to find out and another two years after that to fully understand. When I met Jenny, she told me, my life changed when I took my first sip of Norton. You sit up and take notice when you hear a sentence like that. Wow. But, but how and why? And these were questions that I had from the very beginning. How and why? How can a wine spur you to that kind of a change? I wanted to know more about her. I wanted to know more about the Norton itself. And at that very early stage, the two had already become entwined in my mind. The world of wine is a big world. But the world of Norton, I learned, is small. And Jenny is perhaps its greatest guru and teacher. She knows more about the subject of Norton than anyone in the world and has planted more Norton than anyone in the world. Through Jenny, I learned that Norton was, in the world of wine, a curiosity, an obscurity. Most wine writers who tried it sneered at it. In fact, one wrote very wittily that Norton tasted to him like grape juice run through a garden hose. <laughs> there was also an eccentric band of Norton enthusiasts, but the mainstream world, the mainstream wine world was ignorant of it. And that intrigued me, a thing that people either loved or hated and that most ignored, a thing that provoked such extreme response, and a thing with a past, a rich and fascinating past. Jenny herself seemed possessed of a rich and fascinating past, too. Holed up like Citizen Kane in a mansion in the countryside of Virginia with 30-foot ceilings and empty cavernous rooms, a loner figure running a vineyard and living in relative solitude. I learned over that first six, seven months that I'd gotten to know her that she'd made $20 million at the height of the tech boom. I learned that she had six children. And I told her I wanted to learn more about the Norton and about her too. Follow my footsteps, she said. Go where I've gone and I will guide you. And so I did, and so I went. And down here I came, down to Richmond I came. To begin first by reading the letters of a medical doctor named Daniel Norton, who 
I soon learned had been a contemporary of Edgar Allan Poe's. And like him, a loner, a melancholic, a figure at the margins of his family. I'm going to read and I'm going to sprinkle uh, the talk today with some excerpts from the book just to give you further grounding in this story. This is Norton as a young man at age 21 having, uh, having come home from uh, the University of Pennsylvania where he became, uh, where he went to medical school and, and, and soon after became a doctor. In 1815, he graduated and returned home, determined to make something of himself, to elevate his profile in the rigorously stratified society of his native city. Richmond was changing. The War of 1812 was over. Business was booming. Tobacco processing would not arrive for another generation, but the cessation of the war had opened up grain trade to Europe, and flour milling drove the economy, spurring a network of related industries from machinery to ironworks, to coopering. The next three years, the so-called flush years, witnessed a flurry of real estate speculation, birthing a massive, unsustainable bubble that eventually popped with the panic of 1819. The city became a banking colossus. New neighborhoods popped up, some, some fully developed, some not. And a, realist, and a real middle class emerged for the first time. A sleepy town of rolling hills and deep ravines of quaint iron-fringed houses and gently undulating plantations, of lolling afternoons on wide porches and courtly dances at night in grand parlors. Richmond had emerged as a vital center, the unofficial capital of the South. But some things had not changed, and coming home to Richmond meant coming home to assume his place among the amblers. Richmond was, um, for, for Dr. Norton, Richmond meant coming home to the amblers. That was his family. His, his adopted family, the family his mother had married into when Norton's father died. And the Amblers had connection with John Marshall, the first Chief Justice. What choice did he have after all? He was not a northerner and never would be. He might not have felt a part of things at the Ambler estate, but it was a life he knew. And the ties that promised to bind him inextricably to the old life also promised connections that might prove useful in building his practice. Now that he was settled at home, one of the first orders of business was to sit for his portrait, one of the rites of passage for Richmond's elite. He was 21. The picture, departing from the bland impassivity of most formal portraits, is startling in its directness. In a yellow waistcoat and mutton chops, he sits posed before an olive background, his body at a slight turn, his pale face in a subtle rightward tilt. His beady eyes are dark and imploring fixing the viewer with an expression of insolence amplified by the attitude of his arms, which are crossed. A first impression would suggest that the sitter appears to be impatient with having to pose for a portrait when there are more interesting, more important things to do. But the picture also suggests another kind of impatience, an impatience with the codes and assumptions of a society he was ambivalent about rejoining. So he comes home. He's already a melancholic living on the margins of, of this family that doesn't quite like him and that he doesn't quite like in turn. And he's determined to make something of himself and to become, as he says, he longs to be a personage in the society. Well, he fashions a number of escapes. None of them work. The final escape is to marry a woman and go and, and, and live now northwest of what was then the city, uh, which, as Jack mentioned, is right around the VCU campus today. And he, he creates a garden, and he decides to experiment with this garden, do all sorts of crazy things in the field, trying to, to hybridize things, trying to create new, new, new plants, new crops, trying, experimenting. Well... Amid all this, one day, his wife dies and his child dies. And you have a melancholic, a loner, and now this, this tragedy plunges him into utter despair. He's on the verge of suicide for about three months as 1821 rolls into 1822. But something saves him. Something pulls him back from the brink. 
And the something that saves him is literally this grape, this tiny grape that we now know today as the Norton grape. He wanders into his garden one day and finds that one of his experiments, one of these crazy experiments he's, been, uh, he's undertaken in the garden has taken root. This grape is, is an oddball. This is not something that anybody has concocted before or thought to concoct. It's a grape that is a hybrid of a European grape and an American grape. The American grape is no longer with us. Those two grapes are crossed. And what he does in this experiment is he, he, he creates a hybrid, covers the, the two, covers, covers the plant with a cloth. The cloth blows off. There's speculation as to why he would cover it so lightly with a cloth. I think he wanted chance to come in and create further craziness. I think he was open to the idea of an accident in the same way that a painter working intuitively is open to the idea of an accident. And what happened is he got that accident. The, the hybridized plant was further impregnated by some rogue pollen that landed on it. So you have now this grape that scientists today still don't know what to call, still don't know how to, to identify it properly. It's part European, it's part American, and it's part unknown, it's part unknowable. It's got that air of mystery. It really is the gumbo of grapes. <laughs> this thing that is, is this melange of old world, new world, and the thing that's not known, as so many of us are. So many Americans are. We don't, we don't fully know our past. We know we're this, we're this, we're this. And we may be some of this, but we're not sure exactly what that all is. And this was fascinating to read about and learn about. This, this thing that's part Europe, part American, and part mystery. Well, I didn't fully understand it until I started delving further. And part of my research took me to the Valentine Richmond History Museum. And I, I read some of Dr. Daniel Norton's letters. Um, I want to say something to, we, we have a, a little bit of an older crowd here, so I can, I can speak freely. Um, I've talked to a lot of students in the last couple of years. I used to teach college as well. Um, students think that Google is the be-all, end-all for finding out everything. And it's certainly a great resource. But there's no, there's really nothing like getting your hands on some primary source materials, touching letters that somebody wrote 200 years ago, flipping those pages with the white gloves, gently, turning gently under scrutiny of, of the guards, um, looking at the microfiche, and really touching history, really, really taking it in. And had I not done that, had I not found these letters at, at the Valentine Richmond History Museum, this book would not be the same book. These letters brought me into the heart and mind of this man. And this man had a very fascinating, very rich and full inner life. One of the things that I learned through these letters was the context for this discovery. It wasn't simply that Daniel Norton had created a, a, a crazy grape. It was that he had cracked the code. He did what Americans had tried to do for 200 years and could not do. And that led me back further. I wanted to learn why they had not been able to do it. And that led me to reading up, re really immersing myself in the history of the Jamestown Project. And I learned that the Jamestown Project was motivated in part in, in pretty good part by a desire for the English to get out from under the thumb of the French and the Spanish when it came to winemaking. They wanted a wine colony of their own. And they didn't succeed. They failed. They failed for four generations. And the reason they failed was because they kept trying to take a European model and impose it in the New World. And the New World's a different place. In, in France, there's 
a term for winemaking. Does anybody know the term terroir? Terroir refers to this kind of mystical combination of soil and air that, that makes this patch of the world different from this patch of the world and different from this patch of the world. The individuality of a specific place. Well, they didn't understand that. It's a term in France, but it wasn't applied with any degree of understanding or sensitivity here. And so they failed. The climate is different here. The soil is different here, among other things of difference. And they failed because they, the things they tried were to, were to simply to grow the grapes um, and hope that winemaking and the, the theories that they uh, carried with them, um, that the, the best theories uh, that were going then in, in France and in Spain would, would carry them. I want to read a, a, a passage about that time and about that failure. It was a great failure because so much depended on growing grapes. The entire project depended on this. The Virginia Company, which funded the expedition, made it very clear that they expected all these, these colonists, these pioneers, to grow grapes. Every male had a household had to grow 20 acres of grapes. So here we are. Now, this is a meeting in 1619. They've been failing already. And they have a meeting to, to talk about what is to be done for the people who are too timid, who are growing the grapes, but not having any success and, and deciding to, to bail out and try something else. So in, 19, six, uh, I'm sorry, in 1619, at the first meeting of an English representative assembly in the colony held in a Jamestown church, the first representative assembly in the New World, the Burgesses passed something called Act 12. All men who headed a household were required by law to grow European grapes. And here's, here's the wording. Every householder do yearly plant and maintain 10 vines until they have attained to the art and experience of dressing a vineyard, either by their own industry or by the instruction of some vigneron. And that upon what penalty soever the governor and council of the state shall think fit to impose upon the neglectors of this act. The penalty was eventually decided, and the penalty was on pain of death. So this is a serious undertaking. But they keep failing. And so 1619, we go to 1639, 49, 59, up until really the end of the century. And the astonishing thing for me to find out was that the failures kept being repeated generation after generation after generation. It was this tantalizing fruit, quite literally, that everybody wanted to take a crack at. And everybody kept repeating the same mistakes. In the literature, it's really fascinating to read about these mistakes because if the wine was agreeable, tasted good, uh, it didn't last. The grapes didn't last. If the grapes uh, lasted, invariably, they were all uh, summed up with one phrase, what they tasted like in a glass, and that was that they all had the same characteristic, which was odor of wet dog. <laughs> this is not a good thing. So time moves forward, and, and various people, Lord Baltimore tries, and, and of course then Thomas Jefferson tries. And Jefferson seems more uniquely suited to succeed than anybody else. I mean, he's, he's so devoted to wine. Jefferson, throughout his life, Jefferson spent 50 years making wine, trying to make wine, failing at making wine, drinking wine, acquiring wine. Um, this is a man who had many, many obsessions and interests, and wine was, was among them. But wine is, is not talked about nearly as often as the others. He is determined to get behind a grape, to have a project grape, something that he can put his name behind, and, and that'll funnel all this, this energy and attention and, and effort to create the American grape, 
the, the, the new world wine. And it didn't work. It didn't work. And this is, this is till the day he died, one of the great failures that he considered one of the great failures of his life. Why does he fail? Well, Jefferson talked often of growing a native culture, having a homegrown culture, but he repeated the same mistakes that the early Jamestown colonists did. He kept bringing in his vignerons from France. He brought, in, he brought in experts from Italy. He brought in folks from Spain. They all were inclined to try what had been tried. And it didn't work. The, the, soil, the soil kept befuddling them. The, the air, the land kept befuddling them. Jefferson eventually gave up. And everybody thought, well, this, this, is, this is sort of the waving of the white flag on the project of wine in, in, in the New World. Um, he gave up shortly before he died. And this is now wine in America for 200 years. He's, he is often thought of as, as the father of wine in, in America. Never produced a single drop of it. So this is the context against which I began to understand what Daniel Norton had done. And it fascinated me to think that here's the great man Jefferson, and here's the nobody Norton on the margins, and the nobody Norton accomplishes what the great man Jefferson tried and tried for 50 years to accomplish, and succeeds. And he actually tries to get the wine to Jefferson. And one of the, one of the books I read one day at the Alderman Library in Charlottesville was Thomas Jefferson's garden book. And there's an entry, Norton Vines Delivered. And beside it, nothing. Uh, I believe that Jefferson was too frail and sickly by that point to have done anything with them had he been interested. And I think he would have been interested. This would have been the wine to get behind. This would have been his project grape. So Norton succeeds. And this brings him back from the brink. And it becomes the basis for wine in America, the beginning of wine, really, in the New World. And it's an interesting moment, because nobody really believes what Daniel Norton has done. And this interests me, too. He begins to be discredited shortly after he dies. Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons why. I want to read a short excerpt. Uh, uh, somewhere around... Uh, 1860, a man emerges and says that the Norton grape is growing in the wild um, on Cedar Island, which many of you may know. And he says that this is a wine that his, uh, a grape that his father had gotten behind and, and grew in profusion, and this is really uh, his father's grape, and it's not Norton's grape. And of course, that story begins to spread. The story gained currency even as the doctor's seedling continued to spread across the country. It gained currency because Norton himself was no longer around to dispute the charge, and because even if the media of the 19th century had been a more coherent, more organized enterprise, so little documentation of Norton's work existed that anyone who might have turned to his papers in search of evidence would have found scant support. And even if there had been mounds of papers left behind to provide explicit proof of his triumph, the fact remained that Daniel Norton was a bit player in an obscure drama, a character actor, not a leading man. There was another reason the story did not die. In most instances, the word of one man against that of another amounts to a simple dispute, easily dismissed. But this one gained strength and momentum because it sounded like the truth. It conformed to conventional ways of thinking. Mendel's advances in genetics and the new science of hybridization did not become widely known until the early 20th century. Norton had been working with these ideas for years, but without an understanding of his technique, which was not possible without an existing body of knowledge to explain his advances, it was hard for people to grasp what he had done, which was to, which was to introduce something different, something heretofore not seen. Far easier to presume that he had not done something new at all. Far easier to think cynically and to hypothesize that he had taken somebody else's discovery and passed it off as his own, as 
Namasi, the man, insinuated, or as rumor alleged, found it in the wild and claimed he had created a new variety. The doctor's reputation was in a curious place in the second half of the 19th century. As the grape was planted and embraced, as its popularity spread and his dream of producing a native-grown table wine of suppleness and worth became reality, he receded further and further into the background, a figure of controversy, his achievement shrouded in mystery and doubt. If his name came up at all, it was to invoke the ongoing dispute over claims of his authenticity. Well, I became more interested. I became more interested because this already started seeming to me like a very strange mystery with many parts going off in many directions. And it also cemented something for me of who this man was, this man who had never, never gained the renown, never become part of the vital center that he longed to become, who remained, even after this tremendous achievement, a marginalized figure. The greatest triumph for the Norton, Daniel Norton dies in the, in the late 1840s. But as I said, the, the, the Norton fans out all across the country. And it comes into the Midwest at a time when German immigrants are arriving by the boatload, escaping the, the, the deprivations uh, in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. And the, the town that they come to, they come to many, many towns, but the, the one town that has the greatest promise, at least for the Norton story, is a town called Herman. And Herman is uh, 80 miles west of St. Louis. It's 100 miles almost due south of Hannibal, birthplace of Mark Twain. And they, they come from northern Germany to this tiny town to create a new colony. And it becomes, inexplicably, it becomes a kind of wine colony. It becomes what Jamestown never was able to become. What interested me to learn was that these were not people who were winemakers. They didn't know the first thing about wine. Uh, they didn't really know the first thing about planting, gardening, horticulture. They were often called the Latin farmers. And it was a derisive term because these were people who could read Catullus in the original but didn't know the first thing about crops. What was interesting to me was that these were, these were men, largely men, who taught themselves, who read and read and tinkered and wrote. And by this process, by this method, this scientific method, this, this, this really rich immersion in their field, they taught themselves what they needed to know. They, they read manuals. They studied, they studied the, the, the atmospheric conditions. They studied the soil. They, they were much more systematic than the, the Jamestown colonists ever were. They willed themselves to become expert. Within a quarter century, they created something astonishing. They created the Weinstrasse, the wine road. There were 125 wineries in and around, well, outside of St. Louis, about 80 miles, as I said, and stretching uh, south and west of St. Louis. By the time of the Civil War, 125 wineries. To me, who I thought I knew wine, to me, the mere fact of finding out that Missouri made wine was astonishing in itself. <laughs> but now to find out, not only did Missouri make wine, it made good wine, and not only did it make good wine, but it was the Napa Valley before there was a Napa Valley. 1873 is, is really the high water mark for the Norton story. Norton will never again have this prominence, never again have this degree of reputation. In 1873, a bottle of wine goes from this tiny town in, in Herman, Missouri, goes to a uh, an exhibition in Vienna, the Weltausstellung in, in Austria, and it wins a gold medal. It is declared one of the great red wines of the world at the time. This is the largest gathering 
of wine, wine from every corner of the globe, the largest gathering of wine that the world has seen. It's a great, great moment. I want to read a small passage to give you uh, a little bit of the flavor. And one of the things that you have to understand about this time is that this is the high water mark for the Norton, but it's really the, the lowest point in the history, well, in modern history, certainly, for winemaking in Europe. Because there's a tiny, insidious louse named Phylloxera that's destroying the vineyards, particularly of, of France. So bad, the, the circumstances are so bad that priests are being called in, and they're sprinkling holy water on the vines. They're, they're grasping at anything that will save this industry, which is not really just an industry. Wine in, wine in France, as anybody who has had French wine, traveled to France, knows this is, this is really part of the national character. So you destroy that, you really destroy the soul of the French. And this, this, this louse is destroying it. So European winemaking is at its darkest moment. The Norton is at its greatest promise. And the French are so desperate that they arrive at two, eventually two courses of action. Uh, one is to try a little un, really unknown technique at the time, uh, a grafting technique in which they're going to take American uh, vines, graft them onto the French vines. That actually works. But it's not known that it's going to work. Plan B is really fascinating. Plan B is to repopulate many of the vineyards of France with some of the American varieties, including Norton's Virginia Seedling. And another, uh, another batch of, of, of grapes that today we don't have any idea of, Ivy, Lenoir, Herbamont, all these varieties that are really part of this 19th century explosion of wine in America, lost. It was a little premature, it was, sorry, it was premature and not a little reckless to suggest that a changing of the guard was coming, that America was about to overtake France for supremacy in wine, but already the whispers had begun that the old hierarchies were about to tumble. The American experiment was not yet a century old. The peculiar institution had just been abolished, and the country was still quaking from a bloody civil war that had shaken the self-image of the fledgling nation as a bastion of new and improved ideas. But American wine, which since the country's inception had been derided by foreign esthetes for its foxiness, a quality that had frustrated and embarrassed a wine-obsessed Thomas Jefferson, had clearly arrived. And an American type had clearly arrived, too. In the novel, there was Twain's crudely vernacular first person. In poetry, Whitman's ragged, exuberant lines. In music, the emergence of an exciting new sound that improbably set the formal harmonies of European balladry with percussive African rhythms. All were met initially with opprobrium, dismissed as coarse, barbaric expressions beyond the bounds of taste of what was acceptable. Norton, departing from familiar models, was their counterpart in wine, earthy, bold, and wild on the tongue, sometimes overlooked and often misunderstood, a melange of Estevalis and Vinifera, of Europe and America, a wine that was ultimately nothing so much as itself. A new century loomed, the American century, an era of unprecedented American economic, political, and cultural might. And it was not hard to imagine that American wine would be a force, too. Europe had every right to be pessimistic, just as America had every right to be optimistic. Never had the prospects for wine in the old world looked darker, and never had its future in the new world looked brighter. In the 1870s, Norton goes on five years later to win a gold medal in Paris at another huge gathering of wines. And it looks as though the Norton is going to be the linchpin of American wine for the next century. Uh, already, one of the leading wine critics of the time, a man named Henry Vizzatelli, who is uh, a friend of Charles Dickens's, is the publisher of one of the leading newspapers in London. He's a wine critic, and he proclaims the Nortons that he's tasted, particularly from Missouri, to 
to be excellent wines, and he believes that they are going to not only put American wine on the map, but create uh, an American stronghold, as he puts it. He believes that American wine is destined, that, that, that Missouri and Virginia are destined to become one of the leading wine regions of the world, which, if you jump forward 100 years, seems like a ridiculous notion. I wanted to know what happened. How had something reached such a pinnacle and then fallen so hard and so fast and become literally an obscurity? So I spent time in the old Weinstrasse trying to find out how had this thing disappeared. Well, there are a lot of different reasons, a lot of varied and different reasons. One is, is the Transcontinental Railroad played a part. Uh, you had the advent of refrigeration, and of course you had prohibition, which, as they all say in that part of the world, uh, was the nail in the coffin. But what nobody in Missouri really liked to talk about was the war to drive, uh, sorry, the war to isolate and drive out the Germans who had built such a model industry. The temperance movement had become a prohibition war and took aim at modernity, at cities, at immigrants, at liberal notions of progress. And it was worst of all in the Weinstrasse. And in the years leading up to World War I, the Prohibition War linked arms with the desire to expunge Germans from the state. These immigrants, held up as such a success story, were now derided for being different, for being outsiders. The grape that they had embraced, the would-be Bordeaux of the New World, was pulled up from Virginia to Missouri in a frenzy to eradicate every evidence of demon drink. And with it, the Latin farmers who became viticultural theorists, many of them headed west to California to find freedom. One of the reasons that we don't know anything about Missouri today and that very few people know anything about Virginia as a wine region is because all of that great learning, all of that great knowledge, all of that testing, all of that theorizing traveled west where it found greater freedom to flourish. Well, the Norton did survive, barely. And one of the reasons it did was a couple of bootleggers. And these bootleggers understood its value and they tended the vines in secret. Um, bootleggers loved the Norton. The Norton was grapey enough to, to be used in a wide variety of applications. And they, they kept the Norton alive from the time of prohibition in, uh, mostly in Missouri. And they kept it alive for about 30, 40 years. Out there, by the way, they call it homemade wine. Nobody ever refers to it as bootleg wine. Homemade wine. Um, they, they handed it in the 60s to a hog farmer who, in the spirit of Dr. Norton and the Latin farmers a century earlier, taught himself everything he needed to know about wine to become the expert he needed to become. And he takes over this historic winery in Herman, Missouri, the winery that bottles the wine, the Norton, in 1873 that goes to Austria and wins this very, very prestigious gold medal. A hog farmer. And the hog farmer passes it on to eventually to an Air Force pilot who brings it back to Virginia and plants it in the soil and then passes it off like passing a baton to Jenny McLeod. I was thinking about that. You have, a, you have a hog farmer, you have an Air Force pilot, you have this woman who had never made wine before trying this wine. This is a very, very American notion. We can try anything, we can, we can attempt anything, we can fail, we might succeed. So these were really fantastic stories, and I, was, I loved the fact that most of these people were not doing this out in the open, that this was something that was conducted on the margins. This was something that was very much a, a, a labor of love and a, a project that attracted eccentrics, how to bring this thing back, how to resuscitate it. When the Air Force pilot, a man named Dennis Horton, some of you may have had wine from Horton Vineyards, when he goes back to Missouri to try to find Norton in the, in the 1960s, sorry, in the 1980s, he, he can't find it. So the, the, 
bootleggers had restored it, but it wasn't growing in great profusion. He was stunned to learn that this winery, this historic winery that was producing such great wine was literally two blocks from where he grew up. But he didn't know it as a winery. He knew it simply as a mushroom cave. It was where he played hide-and-go-seek as a kid. He was 10 years old, living a Twain-like boyhood, playing like Tom Sawyer in these grand arched mushroom caves. And this, this winery had been in disrepair and you know, out of use for 40-some for years. He went to try to find the Norton and bring it back to Virginia, to what he called the cradle. He couldn't find any. He finally found what he needed, the sticks he needed, from a bootlegger. So that bootlegger becomes part of this story, part of this, part of this very strange and winding, crazy train that leads to the present. Well, by this time, by the time I had, I'd learned some of this Norton history, and I knew that Norton now had this, this, this great first act, this thing that comes from, from literally from the soil, from nothing, and rises up to become something that is, is, is renowned and, and prized, plunges to, to, to nothingness, and then is reborn again, has a, has a little bit of a third act. It's a great structure for a writer. And yet it wasn't enough for me. It was interesting. It was interesting, but I still hadn't fully connected, fully meshed with this story. And I, I was resisting writing until I fully connected with it. So by this point, I was just researching and doing a lot of immersion and doing a lot of reading, telling myself I was working on something, but not really fully feeling like I was working on something. And I was gathering these stories, and these stories all were interesting to me, rich stories, fascinating stories. I was about two years into what I would call my Norton studies with Jenny, Jenny directing my coursework like a professor, telling me to go to Missouri, telling me where to go, where she had been, telling me to go to Richmond, telling me to go to Charlottesville, telling me where to go, which books to look for, who to talk to, which vineyards to try, all of this. This was my Norton coursework. This was my extended Norton seminar with Jenny. And it was all very fascinating to me. And yet, as I said, it wasn't still, it wasn't yet a story. It wasn't yet something that I had fully connected with. Well, as I said, it was about two years into this when Jenny revealed to me something that made things start to click in in a way that they had not before. And that's when she told me that she had been a man. And at this point, it gave me pause because I started thinking, I have so many different areas here that I have delved into. Jamestown history, early Richmond history, the life of Daniel Norton, hog farmers, prohibition, and it was all very sprawling. And now I had this. What to do with this? And we, we took our time. We, it actually was a period of another two and a half years. And she told me some really intimate, profound, and, and very amazing things. She told me that she had decided to go ahead with her transformation. At the same time, she decided to grow the Norton. And the two notions bound up with her in her own mind. And it's at this point that things started to click in for me. Making the change, she told me, had given her the courage, well, the courage to do anything at all in the world, but specifically the courage to leave her business and her family and open a vineyard in Virginia, making a wine no one had heard of, and tilting at windmills in her attempt to restore Dr. Norton's legacy. She became obsessed with Dr. Norton, obsessed with making the change, and obsessed with growing the Norton. All these things were not separate notions to her, but they had connected. And the story now began in the same way to connect for me. She believed and, and pursued a course that suggested she was his spiritual heir. One day early on, I went back 
through my notebooks. This is a process that writers and I think historians also um, will, will understand. I went back through an early notebook and sometimes things you're told in the beginning register ver very little. They, they barely have any significance for you. You go back, you go ahead three years in time and suddenly a random remark, seemingly insignificant, takes on great significance. And what she had told me then was that she said, I don't want to make the world's 350th best Merlot. I want to make the world's best Norton. At the time, I, I simply thought it was speaking to her determination to make a good wine. I didn't realize at the time, and I realized only later. I only realized after we'd had these very deep, searching conversations about identity, about her need to fully reinvent herself and become the person she thought she was destined to become. I only realized that what she was telling me had to do with singularity, with being fully, exuberantly oneself, with finding the, the, finding the person within her that she was most, most capable of becoming, most determined to become. And that spoke to me. It spoke to me. It was, it was a personal journey for her that became a kind of personal journey for me to connect her with the Norton. And I realized early on in my research, I had said that I wanted to learn more about the Norton and more about her. And I realized in learning more about her, I was learning about the Norton. And learning about the Norton, I had learned about her. This was a quest to become singular, a quest to become a full, ripe individual. And the Norton story is not the story of the insider. It's not the story of the success. It's not the story of great promise. It's the story of the thing on the margins. And so I began to connect the dots. And I began to see through the Norton to something else and something that I thought was deeper and richer because of Jenny. And then I thought, here we, here we have a melancholic loner doctor on the margins of society. We have the immigrants who were embraced and then derided and driven out. We have the bootleggers. We have the eccentric tinkerers who bring the Norton back to prominence. The unlettered hog farmer, the iconoclastic Air Force pilot. And most forcefully of all, and to me most meaningful of all, the multimillionaire transsexual. All linked over time, over the centuries, all connected by this rich, winding history, this history that is really our history. Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass wrote famously, I hear America singing, celebrating a decidedly Whitman-esque cast of characters, the dispossessed, the unloved, the forgotten, the marginalized. In them, he saw America. And drinking the Norton and thinking about the Norton and spending time among Nortonians, I felt much the same thing. I heard America singing. In the world of wine, the most prized and celebrated wine grape is the Pinot Noir. And it produces an elegant elixir. Very, very supple, very elegant, very profound wine. For, for wine lovers, the, the, the most artful expression of, of, or can be some of the most artful expression of, of the, the uh, vintner's art. Pinot was often called the noble grape. The Norton might one day have become that, but we'll never know. California emerged and tastes changed. Tastes changed in America. A whole new set of tastes came to the fore and displaced earlier tastes, those earlier rustic tastes that produce wines like Ivy, Lenoir, Norton's Virginia Seedling, Herbamont. The Norton is not the noble grape. The Norton will never be the noble grape. The Norton is the ignoble grape. And it's, it's us. It's us in a way that Pinot Noir and Merlot and Chardonnay will never be us. 
earthy and a little unruly. It's not decorous and immediately agreeable. Untrammeled, free, a little and more than a little possibly mysterious. One more bit of Whitman, again from Lees of Grass. He writes, I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. Let us celebrate this piece of Americana, this homegrown piece of Americana, this American original, this American original lost then found, this barbaric yawp. Thank you. I wanted to uh, just close with a, a short passage. It's from the, the last chapter of the book, and I thought for an audience that, that really knows the city that this would be uh, of some, some meaning for you. And it's, it's my visit to Daniel Norton's grave. I park and get out. This is at, at Shaco Hill Cemetery. A dismal cluster of low-slung apartments borders the entrance. Little kids run in the dry, lusterless grass, their legs liquid as they chase one another around the development, their shirts off. Hip-hop booms from an unseen source, the treble turned down, the bass turned up, so the sound that carries in the humid spring air is a kind of heavy breathing. There's trash along the curbs, cigarette butts, mixed with torn, desiccated leaves, twisted candy wrappers, bits of fast food containers. Laundry on a long wire flaps in the wind. It doesn't surprise me that the final resting place of the elite of 19th century Richmond should be flanked by a housing project that contains the dispossessed of 21st century Richmond. Actually, it shocks me, shocks and delights me. The odd, ironic twists of history, the raging incongruities. I enter the grounds. There's no directory indicating where anyone is interred, and for a long time I wander uncertain as to how I might find the doctor. Uncertain, too, of whether finding him at all is not some hopeless excursion, and I have somehow gotten my information wrong and should turn back and return to my microfiche projector at the library. In the middle of the cemetery, an obelisk enclosed by a black steel bar fence rises up from the earth like a monument over a city center. A magnolia tree provides protective cover. It is one of the most distinctive, most impressive headstones in the cemetery, and I am not surprised to discover whose plot it designates. John Ambler, Esquire. Catherine Ambler, Norton's mother, is in the same plot. Not far away is John Marshall, the Chief Justice. So too is Polly, his wife. Something tells me I'm close. I circle the grounds that encircle the encircled obelisk. But no, nothing, not a sign of Dr. Norton. I try again, this time with greater determination and intensity, like a detective scouring a crime scene for forensic evidence, crouching several times to inspect headstones and squint at their lettering, and still no doctor. It's frustrating, but I'm more puzzled than frustrated, my research into the Norton in microcosm. Finally, it occurs to me to wonder, what would make the most sense? Or rather, what is the opposite of my assumption? In other words, not what place would be the most fitting, but rather what would be the least fitting, like the sign. And I'm referring to the sign uh, Norton Street, which is bent and at a crooked angle uh, near the VCU campus. Like the sign, the least fitting and most unfortunate. At last I find it in the far corner at North Second and Hospital. It is a simple marker, so simple that I would not have thought to stop and investigate had I not been looking for it. Nothing rises into the air to proclaim the importance of the deceased. Nothing encloses the tombstone. It lies flat against the ground, a thin, faded gray sheet. From a distance, it looks like a blanket spread out upon a grassy expanse. Why am I not surprised to discover that in death as in life, the doctor remains the outcast, the misfit, the bad boy, shoved into the corner of the cemetery like the classroom dunce, far from the amblers and the marshals, and their world at the vital center. 
I bend down onto one knee to try to make out the inscription. Sacred to the memory of Daniel Norborn Norton, MD, son of John Hatley Norton of England, and his wife Catherine Bush of Winchester, Virginia, born, born November 1794. Intermarried with Elizabeth Jacqueline Call and af afterwards with Lucy Marshall Fisher. Departed this life the 23rd day of January, 1842. Parts of the words have been erased by rain and snow and time. Some have been spattered by bird shit. It is no doubt a reflection of my state of mind of late, the moroseness that has seized me and darkened my outlook and caused my moods to gravitate toward the extreme. But crouched on one knee alongside his tombstone as if in supplication, I find myself unaccountably moved by the poverty of his circumstance. I feel protective of him and defiant on his behalf. My mind drifts to thinking about that period of the doctor's own suffering, his deep and persistent melancholia, his alienation from a Richmond society that neither recognized nor understood him. And I reflect on the crazy circle I have completed in coming here this afternoon, the discovery that was born almost 200 years ago in pain and despair that became an obsession and a mission, and how that same wild vine, which connects Jenny and the doctor and Hussman and Horton and Held, connects me too. And I realize now that I have come to pay more than my respects. I have come to pay a debt. I am a part of you, Daniel Norborn Norton, and you are a part of me. And I promise to bring you to life in my book, to remember and to keep you, to resurrect and restore your name. And your wine, which I tasted once and could not forget, which launched me on a search for you until eventually I found you in it. Your wine, which is the wine of the underdog, of the forgotten, of the dispossessed, of the despised. Your wine, which is the wine of love and hate and nothing in between. Your wine, which is ours, unmistakably ours, whose every inimitable sip I take reminds me that the America I pledge my allegiance to, the America I willingly defend, is not the land of God, family, country, and all the other pieties that are slung in the name of unity and conformity, but the America of outcasts and misfits, of restless seekers, of outsiders longing to reach the center, the America of blind hope, the America of impossible causes. I pull out my cell phone and call Jenny. Who else I think would appreciate this moment, would alternately savor and rue the ironies? I detect a note of ribe amusement in her voice, a recognition of our mutual obsession. Her quest has become my quest. A car careens past, oblivious of the thousands of dead. Its boombox thumps out a hard, stuttering beat, and I talk louder to be heard. Here lies the father of American wine, the real father, not the commonly lauded father, with no marker to indicate his discovery or achievement. And then I look down. There, in the lower right-hand corner of the headstone, a small grapevine grows. Native, wild. Thank you very much. Actually, I have two. One, where did, where did Dr. Norton get his original American grape? And two, do you intend to pursue this theme of American hybrids uh, in another book? Um, first question. So the, the original grape variety, which is no longer extant, is called Bland's. We, we, can't, we can't come up with it anymore. Scientists, there's, there's no evidence, no trace of it exists anymore. Uh, the European grape that it's crossed with <clears throat> is called the Pinot Meunier, which is a very obscure European uh, grape. As to the second question, uh, no, my next book is actually about slavery in the 1850s. Um, yes. They do call it Norton. Uh, in, in Arkansas and in certain parts of the Midwest, the, the Norton grape is called Cynthiana. It adds to the, to the, the craziness of this story, the, the uncertainty and mystery that surrounds so much of it. Uh, in Arkansas, there's no notion at all of Norton. They, they drink what they call Cynthiana, but they are, they are one and the same. At one point prior to Prohibition, there were slight 
differences between the two, with some actually preferring Cynthiana as a, as a, uh, a wine grape. Um, today, according to tests, uh, and possibly because of the way fields were just untended, uh, bootlegger fields particularly, were just untended after um, prohibition. And so the, the, the grapes, which were kind of like close cousins, are now virtually the same thing. Yes? Oh, you're... You're you you you're in you're in the a good spot for it, but I, I will say that um, you would think that with all this history and with all this connection that Richmonders ought to have to this grape, whether they like the wine or not, you would think that every restaurant in this city or every wine shop would have a bottle, but it's not the case. Uh, it's the same way out of Missouri. It's people want the cachet of a French wine. They want the cachet of a California wine. And even in the rebuilt Weinstrasse, and even here, I was at a comfort restaurant during the course of research. Um, that was not part of my research. That was a, a <laughs> little R&R. <clears throat> and the, some of the folks at comfort were, were sneering and laughing at, at the wine. And here's comfort, which is, I mean, you could walk to Dr. Norton's old uh, garden uh, the site of Dr. Norton's old garden, pretty much from from the restaurant, but there's no real regard for it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, 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 there's a lot of reluctance to to fully embrace it. But uh, but I hope that that hope that that changes. We have one final question. One more. Make it a good one. I wondered about the Scuppernong wine. Is that a native wine to it America? It is. It is, and actually, it's 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 interesting you bring that up because we were talking about Char uh, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, if you, if you read through uh, his writings on wine, he goes through uh, a period where he's determined to uh, create a, a, a uh, well, bring, bring these, these, these French wines into America and create uh, what are called um, you know, vinifera grapes, have them planted in the New World and have them thrive. Of course, they fail. Uh, and he gradually moves through a series of uh, American grapes as he's he's sort of you know tamping down his his enthusiasm and uh, he's he's giving up a little bit with each grape on on this great hope he has and the last grape that he gets behind and you you can see it in his letters if you've read enough of his letters by the time he gets to talking about the scuppernong he he doesn't quite believe himself anymore and he says this is this is pretty good. This is this is a pretty good wine. I, I think I think we can do something with this. But it's it's the least enthusiasm he has for for any of the grapes. But he tries to grow it um, in the the eighteen teens. And he has a, a friend in uh, the Maryland area who's having some success growing Scuppernong, and he even serves Scuppernong to some of his uh, European friends, who who don't don't despise it. So. Sure.